thank you so much, Cody and the praise team for leading us in worship this morning. I think I got a little extra, extra oomph for me this morning. Y'all, it's great to see all of you here today. I'm sorry that I was not here last week. It was not by my choice. Uh, the flight decided to get canceled, so I promise you I would have preferred to be here than stuck in the airport, sleeping on the airport floor in Dallas. But I think as I thought about this, my mom and dad and my sister were here, and I think the Lord just couldn't have that many nuns in the same area at one time. If you don't know, my last name is Nun, or else that joke really falls through. But, but anyway, I'm, I'm so excited, y'all, to get to be here this morning. Being honest, I told Emily uh, before even coming, I said, I feel like I've been gone for a month, and it's only been uh, just one Sunday I was out. Granted, I've been all over the place since then, but y'all, it is so good to be back with y'all this morning. And so excited uh, to get to have the opportunity to open God's Word with you this morning. If you would, open up to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Acts, called Acts, The Movement Begins, where we're tracing the beginning of the church, the starting point of God making His people and them growing in Him. And we'll be in Acts chapter 4, the end of Acts 4, and we'll actually dip into the beginning of chapter 5 this morning. And as you're turning there, I just want to ask, have you ever looked at something from the outside before and thought, man, that really looks like it's awesome? Like whether it's looking at at some actress or all-star's life and think, man, it must be awesome to be them. Or looking at some organization thinking it must be neat to be that or some group or whatever it might be. Yeah, I remember growing up, for me, this was the Backstreet Boys. Like I remember as I was growing up, the Backstreet Boys were just my jam. I was like in second grade, okay, whenever they really hit it big, and I remember my sister for her birthday one year asked to go to a Backstreet Boys concert, and so I went with them. Obviously, they had to pull me kicking and screaming going to it, but I remember going to the Backstreet Boys concert, and I just remember thinking growing up that these people just, they have the perfect life. Like, life must be easy for them. You know, looking from the outside in, I was like, they just look like they have an awesome life. Well, many years later, there was a documentary that came out by them, and I ended up watching it surely out of obligation, of course. And as I watched this documentary, I realized, man, there were all kinds of issues externally, but also internally within the group and stuff that they struggled with and they dealt with. And y'all, y'all know this is true as much as I do. So often the way something appears from the outside isn't how it actually is. So often if things from the outside seem to be doing great and they're perfect and they're wonderful, that's not always the truth. You know, so far we've been looking at the early church. And so far as you look at them, we've seen a little bit of, of opposition from the outside. But for the most part, what we've seen with the early church is they're preaching. They're doing many mighty works. They're doing miracles. God's adding to their number every single day. People are coming to know Jesus. And you just think, man, it must have been awesome and easy to be a part of this congregation, so to speak, a part of this fellowship. But what Luke does for us this morning is he peels back the curtain. As we've seen some of the struggles they've had from outside, we're going to see one of the struggles that they had to deal with internally. You know, and y'all, this is the truth. If you're a part of the church, you have to recognize it was the same them as it is for us today. We have to fight for the purity and unity of the church from within just as much as we have to fight from without. You know, if you think about the devil's plan and his goal, would he prefer to, to influence the church from the outside or would he prefer to cause havoc on the church from the inside? Easily the inside. You know, I've heard it said before that the church is like a football team. On Sunday, you meet, you huddle up, you talk about what you're called to do, and then throughout the week, you go out and you actually do it. But just like with a football team, if there's a problem in the huddle, what happens whenever you go out to do it? It doesn't work very well. And so like I've said, we've seen some issues that have come up from the outside, a threat from the outside, but now we're about to see one of the threats that came from the inside of the church, which is a serious deal. You know, this passage breaks down, and really the outline of this sermon is a bit different than uh, is normal for me, but I think it's what fits, honestly, the text a little bit better. Basically, what we're going to get this morning is we're going to see a summary of the early church. What were they about? And then we're going to have two examples, exhibit A, a person to be like, and to act like, and then exhibit P, uh, B, a person not to be like or not to act like. So if you would, look with me at Acts chapter 4 and verses 32 through 35. It says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold 
and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What you see here that we get at the beginning is we get a summary of what's going on in the church. And the first point or the main thing to understand from here is that the church was marked by two things at its inception. It was marked by unity and by generosity. The church was marked by unity and by generosity. And these two are pretty blatantly obvious in this, che- in this text. They're marked by unity and generosity. Notice the unity that they had. The beginning of verse 32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Listen to how it's describing the unity of the early church. They were of one heart and of one soul. They were supremely unified. Now this should be even more shocking to us whenever we remember Acts chapter 2 verse 5. It says that this was the time whenever people from all nations, all nations where Jews were had been in Israel. They were there for Pentecost and they had come to faith in Jesus and then they stayed in Jerusalem. So this group, this body of believers is comprising of people from all over the nations. This was a diverse group of people, and yet we see that they were unified in heart and in soul. How is this possible? Well, this is what the gospel does. They were united in their belief in Christ. And if you were here during the fall, we went through a series in Ephesians. In Ephesians, it talks about how being in Christ, you have a unity with other people that is unlike anything else. In Ephesians chapter, chapter 2, verse 15 specifically, it talks about how God has taken both the Jew and the Gentile, and out of both of them, he has joined them to make one man, one new race, and that are those who are in Christ Jesus. You've heard me say this before. How do you have community with somebody? The word community just means common unity. Whenever you have community with people, you have a common unity with them. For them, their common unity was their belief in Jesus. I love how Tony Morita in his commentary on this he says in the church we don't create unity god establishes unity it's our job to maintain it but we don't create it we are unified in jesus whenever we become followers of him now what you see how does this unity manifest itself or what did it actually look like in this community of believers look at the end of verse 32 it says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Y'all hear that again. They didn't say that any of their belongings was their own, but they had everything in common. I don't know if you've ever been around siblings whenever they're kids. But one of the things I've always found interesting with kids as siblings is they're just really good at sharing with each other. You know, I found if I give, y'all, y'all caught that on really quickly, right? I find if I give my oldest son one sucker, he says, you know what, Dad? I'm going to give this to my sister. She doesn't have a sucker. I have a sucker. I want to share with her. Or you know what? Give me another one so I can give it to Abram. No, that's not the case at all, right? They don't share by any means. They, the, now, if they have two suckers, they may give one away. But if they only have one, there's no way they're giving that away. You know, the truth is this. All of us are born with a nature that is very selfish. All of us are born with a nature that is selfish and even self-preserving. I can show you a little example to show how that's true in your life. If you order some food and you sit down with your family or friends and somebody reaches over to grab a fry, what do you do? You take care of the arm, right, real quick. But it's funny how whenever you're done with the food, you say, does anybody want any fries? Does anybody want anything that's left? You see, even if you're not going to eat the whole plate of food, you're like, don't touch my stuff until I'm done with it, right? You know, in the simplest ways, but to our very core, we are born with a selfishness. We're born with a desire for self-preservation. And this is what makes this so shocking. These people, comprised of people all over the nations, are together. And what are they doing? They're sharing all of their stuff. They're giving all of their stuff away. They're making sure that nobody is in need. Remember, they were unified in their belief in Jesus. They were unified in their faith in Christ. So what do we see as the way that they maintained that unity? They maintained that unity through physical means, through generosity. Y'all, it's not a stretch to say that generosity is a distinguishing mark of the early church. Acts 2, 42-47, we talked about this a month or two months ago, of how each person devoted themselves to one another. Y'all, remember that word devoted means they gave themselves to one another. They were devoted 
to each other. It makes sense, though, in many ways that generosity should be the mark of the church because ultimately they cared more about each other than they did their own stuff. Because think about this. Whenever you are in Christ, we see this example here. Because they were in Christ, they believed that they had all that they needed in life. Because they were in Christ, they believed that they had life. And in so doing, they were bonded closely to Christ and to all who were followers of Him, while at the same time, they were loosened from all the stuff that they had in the world. You see, y'all, as you grow closer to Jesus, you should grab more onto Him and the things that He says matters, and you should slowly let go of the things that we look for in this life that ultimately don't matter. Y'all, a perfect example of this is Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man, right? And a wee little man was he. You got to finish it. Zacchaeus was this guy who was wealthy. He was rich. But what happened whenever he came to know Jesus? All of a sudden, he used to grab onto materialism and hold on to the things of this world. But whenever he came to know Jesus, his stuff wasn't where his value was placed anymore. It was in Jesus. And so he gave. He was generous. Y'all want you to look at the effects of this unity. Look at the effects of their unity and their generosity. We see two here. Verse 33. It says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. What was the first effect of this? Is we see God blessed them. Y'all, you can see this clearly. God blessed them. They were unified in Him, and they were demonstrating their love for each other more than their love for their stuff by giving it away to each other so that nobody would be in need. And we see God continued to bless them. It said with great power He worked through them. With great grace He worked through them. Notice what else happened, 34 and 35. It says, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What was the second effect of this? Is there was not a needy person among them. People's needs were met. Now think about this. There was not a needy person among them. Remember, these people from all these nations were coming in for one week for Pentecost, for a feast, for a festival, and then they were going to go back home. Y'all, if you know you're going somewhere only for a week, you pack like it. Well, some of us do. Some of us pack for two weeks or three weeks still, right? But you pack for a week. You prepare for a week. You make sure you have enough money to be there for the week, whatever it might be. You plan ahead of time to make sure that you're prepared to be there for that week. These people moved here. Whenever they became followers of Jesus, they literally moved to Jerusalem. They stayed there for months and months. You wonder, how in the world were they taken care of? Were other people who lived in Jerusalem or people who were there that were wealthier said, you know what, we're going to give to make sure all of us can still be here. We're going to make sure this person, they don't have a house, come live with us. We're going to make sure this person, they don't have food, come and eat with us. We're going to make sure that this person who is without here, let me meet that need for you. And y'all, as more and more people were coming to know Jesus, the demands of this were large. But you see, as the people were among them, they said, we will do whatever it takes to meet the needs of the people that are around them. Y'all, here's the key for what we see here. Their worth wasn't found in their possessions. Rather, they began to see their possessions as an opportunity to meet the needs of those who were around them. Hear that again. Their worth, their value was no longer in their possessions. Rather, they saw their possessions as a means to meet something else. They saw their possessions as an opportunity, as a blessing to be able to bless other people. The things of this world and their importance were fading as their relationship with each other was strengthened. Yo, coming off from this, how do you apply this to us today? Does this mean all of us need to go home and just sell all of our stuff and give it away? I mean, maybe, but maybe not. It's not saying that explicitly. So what's it saying? What's the point here for us? The point is this, is that those who are in Christ will increasingly see their resources, whether it's money, possessions, or something else. Those who are in Christ will increasingly see that their resources have been given to them for God's glory and others' good, not their own gain. God has not given us stuff for ourselves. He blesses us to bless other people. God gives us things so that we might do it for His glory and others' good, not for our own gain. We're called to use our resources to further the kingdom and to love the church. 
This passage is not saying you can't have a nice house or a nice car or nice things. It's saying that you shouldn't value those things over God's mission and other people's needs. So what about you? What about me? If we say we have a relationship with Christ, are we ever seeing that we're loosening our grip on the things of the world as we're grabbing tighter to God? You know, if you're like me, sometimes I feel like I'm holding on to two strings. <laughs> and I feel like it's pulling, you know, materialism, you know, I want this or I need this. Yo, you can't watch TV and see some ad or some commercial telling you that you are not complete in life if you don't have blank. Like you could even make that as small as like toothpaste and make you think, man, if I don't get that toothpaste, I'm missing out, right? You may see people around you posting stuff where they got the new vehicle or the new this or the new that and you keep thinking, man, I need to get this. Materialism is all around us. Once again, it doesn't mean it's wrong if you get a new vehicle. It's wrong to say, I need that to make me happy. It's just not true. And y'all, we constantly have to be fighting the battle of materialism. Do you find that you're thinking less about your stuff and more about others' needs? Or do you find that you think only about your stuff and not really about others' needs? Or another way to ask that is, do you use how God has blessed you? Do you use the resources that he's blessed you with for him and for his glory? After all, all of it is God's anyway. You know, I've never thought about this before, but I like the idea of saying we share things with other people. Can we ever really give something away whenever it's not ours to begin with? If everything is God's, if everything on the earth belongs to Him, aren't we just stewarding it? Saying, God, you've given this to me, let me share it with somebody else. Do you use your resources for God's glory? Are you generous with the money that God's given you, with the resources that God has given you? Now understand, y'all, we look at God's Word and we hear that we need a tithe, which is 10%. But remember, that's not calling you to give 10%. Flip that around. That's God saying, I'm letting you steward 90%. You give the 10, which is mine, I'm going to let you keep 90 and you decide how to spend it. Isn't the way we spend that show what we value? You know, for some of us, there have been times in mine and Emily's life where giving 10% of our income to the church was tough. And there are times now where if we give 10%, we can give 10% and it'll make a dent. You know what that means? We probably should be giving more. It doesn't mean you have to give it to the church or some Christian organization. It means we should be looking to say, God, you've blessed us. How can we bless other people? Do you give generously? I'd ask you, do you also give joyfully? You know, I find I give joyfully whenever I realize what my money is going to. I will say this. There is nothing on earth, proven, there is nothing on earth like the Southern Baptist Convention, Period. I was at the Southern Baptist Convention this past week where you see 20,000 people there dealing business with each other, trying to think, how can we be about the mission together? And the more I learn about what we do together as a convention, the more I learn about where our money goes. Whenever you give here, we give a portion of it to our association. We give a portion of it to our national convention. And y'all, through money, we get to be a part of, right now, there are 3,600 missionaries that are overseas. We are a part of that whenever we give. There are 3,057 North American missionaries. We are a part of that whenever we give. Right now, there's over 24,000 students who are in seminary. Whenever you give, we give to that to help pastors and church planters and missionaries get school. Now, there's no organization quite like this with the mission work and church planning and revitalization and seeking to reach the world for Christ. And the more I learn about it, the more I've come back thinking, man, I want to give more to this cause. The more I thought of it, I'm like, we need to look at the church budget and see how can we give more to this cause. Yo, we get to be a part of something great. Do you give and do you give joyfully? And I would say probably the hardest question of all, do you give sacrificially? Does how you give make any dent in your lifestyle? If it doesn't, I would tell you, you're not stewarding your resources the way that you need to. And that's hard for us, Right? Everybody in here would admit that stuff doesn't make us happy. Then why is it that that's what we constantly run to? Me included. Does how you give make a dent in your lifestyle? If not, you might not be giving the way you need to. Y'all, we see with the early church, their unity was put on grand display for the people around them by their generosity. And their generosity was distinctly tied to their relationship with Jesus. Those who were in Christ should continually experience a greater desire for unity 
and for generosity and a fading desire for the things of this world. Because that's what getting closer to Jesus does. I've heard it said this way, and I can bet most of you have as well. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into His wonderful face. And what happens? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Is that true of you? Are you looking at Jesus saying, in Him I have life? Recognizing how blessed you are. Y'all, any person in this room is in the top 10% of the world in income. All of us have been blessed. How can we give to the mission of God? Be generous as he's called us to. Remember, if you have Christ, you have life. And our resources are a blessing that he's given us for his glory and for others' good, not our gain. What we see Luke does here now is he peels back the curtain. He's given us a summary of the early church. Now he peels back the curtain and he says, I'm going to give you two examples of what this looks like. Example A, follow him. And then example B is a stark and serious warning for the church today. The first example is exhibit A. It's a guy by the name of Barnabas. Exhibit A, we get a guy by the name of Barnabas. Look at verses 36 and 37. It says this, Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we see one example. There's probably plenty of examples. We see a lot of people are doing this. But Luke just introduced one of his favorite people that he's going to be talking about for the rest of the book of Acts. I've heard one pastor say Barnabas might have been a hero to Luke because he talks about him 23 times throughout the book of Acts. And it seems interesting, the more you learn about Barnabas, the more you see this guy was almost like the glue that helped things work. He was like one of the guys who was always behind the scenes but always helping make things work. But this guy was really important. Think about his nickname. His name is Joseph, but they call him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. It's not just like people... Random people are doing this. It says the apostles called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. That's how he was known in the community. You know, I've wondered, what, if you had a nickname in your church, or with brothers and sisters in Christ, what would your nickname be? Would it be son of encouragement? Would it be son of discouragement on the opposite end? Would it be son or daughter of gossip, of pessimism, of selfishness, of being rude? Being more blunt, are you around the people enough to even get a nickname? Is it maybe son or daughter of joy? Son or daughter of love, of kindness, of Christ-likeness, of help, of friendly? What would your nickname be if you were a part of the church? We see this man, his name was Barnabas because he was a son of of encouragement and it just says what he did he sold a field and brought the proceeds laid it at the apostles feet and said y'all use it where it is needed so what's the example that we get of barnabas we have a model of truth and generosity with barnabas we get the model of truth and generosity with truth we see he gave out of a good heart he was honest no one made barnabas do this it says that he wasn't even from here he was a native of cyprus but he's here. He sees the needs. He sells some of his possessions and brings it to the apostles' feet. No one made Barnabas do this. Rather, he did it because the Lord had changed his heart and he cared about his fellow believers and he wanted to help meet their needs. He was honest. He was truthful. Secondly, we see that he was generous. He did this simply out of a heart to make sure everyone was provided for. This is the quintessential example of someone who lets go of the things and possessions of the world and holds tightly to Christ and others who are in need. Exhibit A, we get Barnabas, a model of truth and generosity. But then secondly, Luke spends more time on Exhibit B. And Exhibit B is that of Ananias and Sapphira. Exhibit A is Barnabas. Exhibit B is that of Ananias and Sapphira. Look with me at chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. It says, But... A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphiriah, sorry, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Y'all, you can make a note there. Notice it's the young men. These interns always get the worst job no matter where they're at, it seems like. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, and they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. With the example of Barnabas, you see that of truth and generosity. With the example of Ananias and Sapphira, you see the example of the exact opposite, of deceit and hypocrisy. From truth and generosity to deceit and hypocrisy. You may say, what did they do wrong? Well, you see, their first problem was they tried to deceive them. It wasn't the fact that they gave money to the church, it's that they lied about how much they gave. They made a sale of their property, but they couldn't part with all of the money they got, so they only gave a portion of it, but tried to make people think that they gave all of their money. In other words, they wanted to look like they gave all of their money. Notice how Luke tries to make sure we understand this point of partiality. Verse 1 and 2, he says they sold a piece of property. They got some of the proceeds. They only brought part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, the problem with them isn't that they gave, it's that they wanted people to think that they gave more than they actually did. Not only was there deceit, but there was hypocrisy here. Y'all, the word hypocrisy literally means you're pretending to be someone that you are not, particularly regarding false virtue or nominal religion. How are they hypocritical here? Is they wanted to look like they were being more generous than they really were. They wanted to look like they were giving all of this and they really weren't. Ultimately, what was their motive? The reason that they gave is they wanted the praise of others. They wanted to be recognized. This act was ultimately about themselves, not those who were in need. Their recognition was their end goal. And apparently they didn't think that the Holy Spirit would know this. They didn't think that God would know this. They thought they could do this and deceive people and be hypocritical about it and get the praise of man. But they obviously very much so were wrong. What was the cost of their hypocrisy? It was the fact that they died on the spot. Now, y'all, there's not anybody in the room that doesn't read this and kind of take a deep breath and go, wait a minute, what? I want to take a minute and I want to look at this. Look at the details of this story. And I want you to think about several things. I think all of us, the elephant in the room, all of us look at this and they go, God, why? Why did you kill them? Why didn't you just reprimand them? Why didn't you do this or that or the other? Why didn't you just do this? Couldn't they have repented and turned? Couldn't something have happened? Why did you do this? And it's interesting, most of our first instinct, I would bet, is to question God in this. Y'all, first and foremost, we need to remember very clearly that you and I are not more merciful and gracious than our God is. Period. There's not a soul in this room that gives more grace than Jesus does. You want to know how I know? Tape record yourself in your car, the audio, for a week, and then turn it in, and we'll see how you act whenever somebody cuts you off in traffic. See how gracious and generous you are to those people. How quickly you are to forgive and not pronounce judgment on them. What about if somebody lies about you? What about if somebody lies on Facebook? You see them putting something out there that just isn't true. Are you that generous and merciful and sweet and kind towards them? You know, if we're honest, we're really quick to pass judgment. So I'd be careful acting like we're holier than God in this regard. God is more merciful and more gracious than you and I will ever be. And as the same people who pronounce judgment so quickly on others, do we really think that we know better than God who's judging a hypocritical couple for actions that would compromise the unity and purity of his church? God did this this way for a reason. 
Now, secondly, we must recognize the heinous sin that they were committing. They're doing a good deed in front of God's people to receive their own recognition and praise. Hear that again. They were using God to get their own praise. They were using the church and the generosity of other people to say, you know what, we can do something like that. We don't want to part with all of this money, but this will be enough to make people recognize just how much we're giving and then people will think that we're great. Their issue was they were using God. They were using the church for their own gain. You'll hear me clearly. We must always remember God takes sin seriously, very seriously. And God takes sin of the people that are in the church even more seriously. You know, growing up, we had all kinds of rules. My parents were fairly strict in a good way. I don't think they were over the top, but they were pretty strict with me about a lot of things. And I found it interesting. There were certain rules that we had at our house that if I had a friend over and our friend did this, it was somehow okay. But if I did it, it was not okay. I never understood that. Also, if we were out doing stuff and, and people were doing something that I knew they weren't supposed to and somehow or another I joined in, my parents would always get on to me. And they usually would follow their getting on to me with a little phrase that says, you know better. Nobody's ever heard that before, right? You know better. What are they saying? They're saying, you know, we've told you about this. We've talked to you about this. You know better than to go and do that. Now, this is what Peter is essentially saying to these people. You should have known better than to come here and lie. You should have known better. Look at what Peter actually says to them. He says, quite bluntly, why did you choose to lie to the Holy Spirit? Why did you choose to lie to God? Why did you choose to test the Spirit? Now, these people no doubt were in and around the church. No doubt they were close enough to see what was happening and to see the praise that these people were getting. And Peter, in essence, is saying, you should know better that God knows your hearts. You know, they were hypocritical. They said one thing and acted one way while it wasn't really true of their hearts, but God knew the truth. You know, this is a scary truth for us. From the outside, you would not know the difference in Barnabas and Ananias. You wouldn't. Both of their stories, what happens? They sell land. They bring it in front of the church. They put down their money. End of the story. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference in a Barnabas and an Ananias. The only reason that Peter did is because the Spirit showed him what was really going on here. But the difference in them was in their hearts. You can see it here. Barnabas gave willingly for others. Ananias and his wife gave partially for self. Barnabas wanted others to be cared for, but they wanted their names to be known. Barnabas wanted God to be praised through his possessions, but Ananias and his wife wanted self to be praised for their generosity. Barnabas is a model of generosity, and they are forever a model of hypocrisy. Y'all, God knew the truth. There's no other way to say it than this. God hates hypocrisy. He hates hypocrisy. Malachi chapter 1, verse 10. God's people are continually coming in and acting like they really want to worship Him, but they don't. And look at how God responds to them. Oh, that there were one among you who would just shut the doors, that you wouldn't be able to come in and kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. You know why? Because these people were coming in and they were just doing it perfunctory. They were just doing it because they knew they were supposed to. They were just coming in and they were offering whatever they want. Whenever you get into this even more, they were offering sacrifices that they just didn't want. Rather than giving their best to God, they were saying, this lamb is one broken leg and an eye that's blind. We're just going to sacrifice him instead of our best. And God says, I have no pleasure in you doing that. Just shut the doors to the church rather than walking in. Y'all, we forget so often that God hates sin and God hates hypocrisy. And why wouldn't he? Who does the devil disguise himself as? An angel of light. What did the devil do? In the Garden of Eden, he uses the serpent to tell them, y'all, look, God is lying to you. Really, he's holding out on you. It's a hypocritical statement. That somehow or another, God's the hypocrite. He's not the one who's telling you the truth. What is sin? Y'all, sin are hypocritical thoughts that somehow or another we can say we believe God and believe that He has everything we could ever want, and yet we run to sin to please ourselves because we don't believe that God can. 
Y'all, it makes sense that God would hate hypocrisy because that is who the devil is. Making people want to believe something else that really is not true. You know, and it shouldn't be shocking for us that God hates hypocrisy because my guess is everybody in this room does as well. If you love hypocrites, just raise your hand. Not a soul. You know, it's funny, whenever I was in college, I remember being with a group and we had this older guy that was with us. And one of the guys in the group, you know, is talking about millennials. He's like, oh man, millennials, you know, we just really prize authenticity. And the older guy piped up without missing a beat and said, oh yeah, because my generation prizes being fake. Like, that's not something new with your generation. All of us want people to be authentic with us. No one likes hypocrisy, period. And I remember whenever I was little, I was probably 10, my brother just picked up playing golf. Remember, he came to the house one day before he went to the golf course, and it was, I guess, one of the first times my parents had seen him since he'd taken up golf. And he fell prey to what a lot of golfers do. He had nice new golf bag, nice new clubs, nice new everything. He thought they would make him somehow be good at golf. Uh, but he'd been out there enough to recognize he was not very good, but he looked the right part. I mean, looked the right part even on the bag. If you're a golfer, you can tell when somebody else golfs a lot. There's got to be more than one glove on the handle of the golf bag. That's proof. You've got to see a towel in the middle, usually another proof. Like, there's certain things that you look at, just like in any sport. Basketball players, they strut a certain way. Baseball players, they hold their glove a certain way. Like, there's just certain ways you recognize people. I remember my dad asking my brother, he says, Nick, why in the world are you going to all this trouble? He said, Dad, it's simple. If I can't be good, I might as well look good. <laughs> Y'all, a problem that has occurred from the church's inception to this day. Hear me clearly. A problem that has occurred since the inception of the church to today is there are so many people in the church who are trying to look like a Christian without actually being one. There's a massive difference in those two. There are people who want to look like a Christian rather than actually being one. Y'all, this is the essence of of hypocrisy. And hear me, it is draining. I know because I've been there. I've been there whenever church was a drag, but I came because I knew I needed to be here. I've been here whenever I was frustrated to give my money, but I knew if I gave my money, maybe God would bless me. I was frustrated by having to read God's word because it just didn't make sense, and to me, it just didn't really apply to my life. But I did it because I thought God would give me favor if I did. I was tired of trying to keep up and follow Jesus whenever, honestly, all of his laws and all the things he called us to do to me just felt extremely burdensome. Until one day I was reading a book called Not a Fam. And in, the, in one of the chapters, the author Kyle Ottoman says, people that live like that will eventually grow weary and tired of trying to maintain an outer appearance that doesn't match an inner passion. And I found that to be the truth for me. Is I did my best to look like a Christian even though I wasn't really one. Y'all, do you know who this passage is for? It's not for the person that's outside the church not for the person that even comes into the church as a teenager as an adult this passage is mainly for the person who's grown up in the church because you are the most susceptible to this growing up and saying you know what i know how to be good y'all being good and being godly are two very different things you can be moralistic and go to hell it's just the truth our good works do not save us we cannot be good enough to find our way to jesus The question of do you know Jesus or not is the question of the difference between heaven and hell. Do I have a relationship with him? Do I know him? And the warning that's set up in front of us is this. Fake it till you make it may be something that's said out there, but fake it till you make it cannot work in here because one day you will stand before God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 is scarily clear. One day all will stand before the throne of judgment and receive what he has done in this life, whether good or bad. All of us. We'll have to stand before him. You're on the end here. We have two different examples. We have Barnabas and that of Ananias and Sapphira. Both sold property. Both gave to the church, but both had different hearts and therefore different outcomes. So you read a story like this and you ask, how do you respond to that? Well, I'd give you two ways you need to respond this morning. First, you need to respond the way they did, with fear and awe. First, you need to respond with fear and awe. Look at verse 5 and verse 11. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all 
who heard it. Go down to verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. What was the church's response is they were afraid. They feared God. Makes sense, right? And y'all, ultimately, we might think maybe this was a bad thing. That's the exact opposite of the truth. This was a good thing. Look at what happens. Just skip down a few verses to verse 14. It says this, And more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. What's the result of all this? People feared God, and then God brought even more people to himself. Why in the world would that be the case? Because people who fear God obey him. People who realize one day I will stand before God, they recognize I want to live in such a way that I'll be excited for that moment, not shrinking back in shame. Whenever people fear God, they have a reverential awe for him and saying, if my life is really his, I want to live for him. I want to do for him. Why? Because they fear God as they should. They take him at his word. By understanding God's wrath, they understand just how much Jesus really did for them. Yo, we can't truly understand the grace of God until we recognize our sin deserves God's wrath. We deserve separation from him. We deserve eternal condemnation from him. But while God is wrathful, he's also merciful and gracious. And he sent his son and said, anybody who is in him will have life. I love the way J.D. Greer, in talking about this text, He says, here we get an excellent definition of what biblical fear is. And it's this. It is all mixed with intimacy. Biblical fear is all that's mixed with intimacy. And this yielded a healthy respect for God and who he is. Yeah, we must recognize that the God we serve is both a God of wrath and a God of mercy and grace. Recognize who God is. A book that my mom used to read to me all growing up was the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I remember always enjoying that book. I remember also when getting older and they came out with the movies, which I was really excited about. And I enjoyed watching the movies. But in it, there's one specific time where one of the little girls, her name is Susan, the littlest girl, she's with Mr. and Miss Beaver. And she's about to go and see Aslan. And she just found out that Aslan was a lion. And this is her response to Mr. and Miss Beaver. Susan said, I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Miss Beaver said, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Susan then responded, so does that mean he isn't safe? Mr. Beaver said, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You know, Aslan in this, he's a lion, but he's a lion who is on our side. And you have to recognize, if you can come into the presence of a lion without at least a little bit of fear, you don't recognize who you're walking into the presence of. God, do you recognize the God that we serve? Do you recognize this God takes sin seriously? And do you recognize that one day you'll stand before him? Obviously, we're not perfect. And that's why he gives us Jesus. But in thinking about this, y'all, we shouldn't ask, why did God do this to Ananias and Sapphira? We should ask, why do we look at God as the issue and not ourselves? Why do we initially say, why would God do this rather than recognizing that he should have done this to us, all of us, and yet he hasn't? You know what? That's called grace. We shouldn't be shocked by what God did, but what God's still doing. He's still bringing people to himself. He's still saving people. You know, the question for us in this regard this morning is, do you have a healthy fear of God? A fear that drives you to believe Him. A fear that makes you want to live for Him in anticipation of meeting Him one day. First response should be fear and awe. The second response is this. We should all have an honest self-evaluation. Honest self-evaluation. If you get nothing else from this, listen to this, please. After a passage like this, we need to all look in the mirror and take a good look at ourselves and ask some tough questions. The toughest one is, who are you more like in this story? You more like Barnabas? Somebody marked with truth and generosity? Or more like Ananias and Sapphira with deceit and hypocrisy? Are you hypocritical in regards to Christianity? Are you trying to look like a Christian rather than actually being one? 
Unfortunately, I don't think I'm far off when I say that there are many who put on a front whenever they come to the church. Ananias and Sapphira are a prime example, and y'all, it happens today. So straight up, are you who you say you are? Is the Sunday you the real you? Or better yet, if you profess to know and follow Jesus, what does your life say? Does it back that statement up? And y'all, this gives us a scary truth. You may fool other people around you, but you will not fool God. And no, he may not strike you down like he did Ananias and Sapphira, but no, one day you will stand before him and it won't be good. The second aspect you need to look at, if you say, Merrick, I know I have a relationship with Jesus. You need to ask yourself very quickly this. Are you trying to make yourself look more righteous than you really are in some area of your life? Are you trying to make yourself look more righteous in some area of your life than you really are? Y'all, truthfully, we need other people in our lives to help us see this. Notice Peter's the one who called this out in them. And all of us need to take a self-check at this. A few months ago, we had some people over at our house. And after they left, Emily sat me down and said, Merrick, I don't know if you recognize this, but whenever you have people over or if you give somebody something, oftentimes you make jokes about generosity. Like you make jokes about what you've given them, almost like you want to make sure they know what you've done. And I can remember walking away from that and just thinking, man, I don't know if I really do that or I didn't realize I did that. The next time I'm with a group of people who are at our house eating some food that we made, I made a joke about it. And immediately, I mean immediately, it was like, that's what she's talking about. And after they left, I had to sit down and I had to think, why do I do that? Because the truth is this, is whenever I'm generous with people, I want them to know that I'm generous. Whenever I do something for people, I realize I want them to know that I've done something for them. You know what that's called? Hypocrisy. And I had to spend time repenting myself, saying I can't do this. I don't need to do this. But there are many areas in our lives. Where do you try and look more holy than you actually are? Fill in the blank. I want others to think I am blank when really I am not. You might say, I want others to think that I know God's word and read it often, but really I don't. I want others to perceive me as a person who prays a lot, but really, if I'm honest, I don't pray that much. I want others to look at me as someone who does this, who does this or is this way, but really, I'm not. How would you answer that question this morning? Lastly, I would ask you, what about regarding unity and generosity? Do you help maintain the unity of God's people through the local church? To be even more pointed, are you around enough to do that? You can't promote unity if you're not here. Are you involved enough to help with that? You can't promote unity if you just walk in, sit, and then leave. Are you generous and devoted with your time and energy and resources to a local church? Y'all hear me. I'm not talking to you if you're not a member here. If you are a member here, I'm talking to you. If you don't want to be devoted and giving your time and your energy and your resources to a people, then why are we here? This is what it's all about. This is the inception. This is how God moves through his people. Are you generous and devoted with your time and energy and resources to your local body of believers? Do you find that you're continually loosening your grip on the things of this world and drawing nearer to God and his people? Do you give to the church generously, joyfully, sacrificially? Remember, as we grow closer to Christ, we'll start recognizing more and more that God has given us resources for his glory and others' good, not our gain. How are you stewarding the 90% that God has given to you? Y'all don't know what God's calling you to do this morning. Maybe he's calling you to give a large amount to us or a large amount to a Christian organization. Or maybe he's just calling you to go back and really think about how you do your finances. I don't know. But I want to ask you, how are you using your resources for God's glory? You know, the passage like this, it's this simple. A lot of self-evaluation needs to occur from all of us. And I would ask you this morning to evaluate yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we recognize this morning that you are worthy of all glory, of all honor, of all praise. God, we affirm that you are sovereign over the world. You are in control. God, you are the God of all. And Lord, I pray this morning we recognize who you are. God, in that, you're a God who takes sin seriously. 
God, and we know how serious you took it because you sent your son, Jesus, to pay for it. What cost you your son? Will not cost us nothing. God, I pray this morning we recognize you gave us your all so that we might give our all back to you. God, you've given us the greatest gift of all, salvation, reconciliation to you, being able to have a relationship with you. And God, this morning, I pray if there's anybody in here that doesn't know you, God, that they would repent and they would surrender to you. I pray this morning, God, if there's anybody in here who this is who you're wanting to reach with this passage, God, somebody this morning who recognized that they're honest with themselves, they've tried to look the part without actually being a Christian. God, I pray this morning they repent and surrender to you. Jesus, I pray for those in here who are believers. God, help us look at our lives and recognize so many people say they don't want to be a part of a church because they say the church is filled with hypocrites. God, in many ways, they just are pointing out to wrong examples and finding their own reasons. But God, in some ways, we, we don't help ourselves. God, all of us in some fashion, we want to appear to look away that we really aren't, but you call us to something better, to humility to not try and lift ourselves up, God, but just to point to you. Father, I pray that we're like the moon. Its its sole purpose is to shine the light from the sun to other people. God, we're not here to show ourselves off. We're here to show people you. God, help us this morning recognize we don't establish unity. You've done that, but it's our job to maintain it. Help us see how we're doing that. Are we being generous? Are we promoting and maintaining the unity of your bride? And help us recognize this morning, there's a lot of self-evaluation in order. And God, you have the grace that you are ready to give on anyone. The first time person to repent and surrender, God, or the person this morning who needs to say, I repent, Jesus. I'm not walking the way I need to. Help us respond to you this morning. I ask all this, Father, in your precious, in your holy son's name.